0: I'm all Mac, all out, just 100% Mac.
1: See, I have my Mac right here. I'm recording on a MacBook Pro. Yeah. I have my iPhone right here. Yeah,
0: I'm the same way. I got a I, iPad Pro, MacBook Pro, uh, another iPad over here.
1: Welcome to Conversation on Tap, a sanguine podcast that seeks to promote intelligent dialogue in an age of echo chambers and self-segregation. Pull up a stool, pour a glass of tasty beer, and join us each week as we discuss all the topics that you were told not to discuss in polite company. My name is Jose. And my name is Christina. And this week we are going to be joined by Sam Rocha uh, to discuss socialism. So the impetus for this conversation was his debate against Trent Horn on Catholic Answers on YouTube, and they debated the resolution, can a Catholic be a true socialist? And so we go through um, what it means to be a socialist and whether or not Um, someone who claims to be Christian can indeed be a socialist. It's a, it's a really long interview, uh, almost two hours. So I broke it into two parts. So this will be part one and next week we will release part two. This week I am joined by Christina, my lovely wife. Uh, Joel is out. He is, you know, he has a life. He's super busy. Uh, he is actually doing construction on his home. He's working on a hallway bathroom. He's got a bedroom bathroom. He's putting in a new sink, water heater, working on the game room, working on the roof, doing solar panels on his house. It's a whole litany of things that he's doing. So he is exhausted and Doing manly things while I'm not doing anything Manly (laughs) at all you would probably call someone (laughs) I would I would like to help the economy by hiring someone. Oh, there you go I'm not selfish like Joel. I'm just kidding. Oh my gosh (laughs) But uh, before we begin, let's discuss what we are drinking. So what do you have Christina? Uh,
2: I have Trader Joe's chai tea latte
1: And you? I have a glass of wine. It's a Cabernet Sauvignon from J.L.O.R., uh, family-owned since 1974. Uh, J.L.O.R. is a local winery. They're out of uh, Paso Robles. Uh, um, we live in an area, thankfully, where there are so many places to go for wine within like an oh, hour's absolutely. drive. So, yeah,
2: truly very, blessed. Very, very, very lucky here. Yeah.
1: All right, now for the segment of our show that we call Fred Talks. In this segment of our show, Christina and I will each share one thing that we are passionate about. For two minutes, though, we tend to be a bit long-winded, so that isn't a strict time limit. This week, Christina is going to discuss... Cancel culture. Cancel culture. Now this should be an entire episode. Joel and I have talked about this in the past, but you want to do it as a friend talk. So
2: yeah, um, I was actually having a discussion the other day with a friend of ours, and we were talking about uh, Bravo firing uh, some of the Vanderpump people there. I believe Stassi, Max, Brent, and Kristen were all fired from the show, and that's all due to you know them
1: making. Racist remarks, or... What did Stacy and Kristen do?
2: Um, I believe they called and gave a, like, falsified police report saying that their co-star Faith mm-hmm. was responsible for for a robbery or something crazy, and saying that, um, you know, she fit the description. Which is freaking horrible.
1: Yeah, so Faith happens to be black. Uh-huh. And the person in some video, I guess, that was on the news was of a black woman, and so they were upset with her. Mm-hmm. Right? There was some conflict going on, and so then they called the police yeah. on her. Yeah. That's crazy.
2: Because they were just being BZs and racist BZs at that. Yeah. So, you know, they got fired, and then, you know, there's Max and Brad, who I think they made some racist comments on Twitter. You know, good for Bravo, for firing these people getting them out of there but here's where cancel culture comes into the picture how far do we go with these people who are now famous first they're fired from the show and then I know Stasi lost like her book deal she has a tour that she was doing like a comedy tour type of thing everybody's dropped her and same with all these other you know people dropped from everything how far does this go down the line? Is, is this atonement enough for what they've done or said? Or um, should they continue to be, you know, punished by not being able to be hired from anyone, anywhere?
1: Into perpetuity. Right. Banned and fired or whatever. Yeah. I think that's where cancel culture comes in. Because it's, well, you did X, sin, for right. crime, right now you are here to for after banned from everything.
2: Yeah, you are hereby banished.
1: Yeah, you're canceled. <laughs> Delete your account. <laughs> but I think it's interesting because these were well. Speaking of Stassi and Kristen, two cast members who were on the original cast. Yeah. Oh, geez. The two other ones, Max and Brett. Who cares? I wanted them gone anyway. This was just <laughs> <laughs> a nice little shove out the door.
2: Yeah. Okay, so, you know, I'm having this discussion with our friend mm-hmm. about these people being fired from Vanderpump Rules, and so we struck up the conversation um, about uh, how far the line we go with these mm-hmm. people. Um, how how much should they be punished And um, I think her response was just something along the lines, well, you know, they deserve it. Yeah. And I'm thinking what's happened to them already is... Completely devastating, mm-hmm. but why should they be uh, prevented in the future from feeding the mouse? Like, well, I think
1: the comment that she had made was, "Well, they're fired from the show, but Lisa Vanderpump still employs them in their res- in her restaurants." Yeah. So it's like, okay, they're off the show, but now you want them also fired mm-hmm. from their place of yes. employment.
2: Yes, it's not enough that they're fired from the show, but you know, fire them from the job completely and. Mm-hmm. Don't hire them for any other jobs or any other shows. And this is a pretty public lesson to mm-hmm. learn. So I'm curious to see how this turns out. What's the right answer?
1: Personally, I think we are totally neglecting forgiveness, redemption by only focusing on the punishment, right? Mm-hmm. There's no opportunity to be redeemed in any sense.
2: Yeah. And that that was more where I was going, you know, leaning towards on um, that particular conversation, so where mm. the other person was yeah, not as forgiving <laughs> or not forgiving at all.
1: Right. Yeah. So that's why cancel culture I think is pretty toxic, honestly.
2: Yeah, oh absolutely. I totally agree. You know, we've all done things in our lives or said things that are just horrific or horrible, but There comes a point of realization and repentance. And we're just aware, you know, moving forward and make changes for the better. Whatever, how big, how small the offense was. But, um... So, at what point do we acknowledge what we've done? Ask for repentance. And repentance means to just completely turn around in the other direction. Mm -hmm. So you're conscious now, you're woke, you're educated, and you're moving forward in a positive light in your life, at what point are you forgiven enough? Right. You know? And it is. It's all about forgiveness. It's the complete opposite of cancel culture. I'm for forgiveness. Mm
1: -hmm. Agreed. All right. So for my Fred Talk this week, I wanted to discuss... A heresy, which was put forward in 1899 by Pope Leo XIII. That always sounds very exciting. A
2: heresy.
1: Yes. This particular... That's
2: never a good word to hear in any context.
1: (laughs) It's not. This particular heresy is called the Americanism heresy. Oh, interesting. So basically, Pope Leo expressed a concern to the American church that... Catholics and Christians here in this country were losing their Christian culture, their Christian identity, mm-hmm. and instead embracing American values oh. and American mm-hmm. culture. So they were no longer distinct, right? Set apart. They were now assimilated. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what America does. America is, treats itself as though it's the best. Americans always think of themselves as the best. And so if you put America as your idol,
2: I mean, at what point did America start thinking that it was best? Because it's a very young country. Right. So are we talking like World War I?
1: Well, this came or out in 1899. Well, that's so
2: crazy. By
1: that point, it was already a problem. Oh, wow. I'm almost wondering if it was from the beginning. Really? That from the, from the get-go, Americans saw themselves as being special or unique. That might be because they were... Post-Enlightenment. That was
2: the first white
1: privilege in the country, (laughs) by the way. That was definitely. Bastards. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So that was over a century ago in 1899. Now, I think that problem has actually gotten worse since then. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I would like to see the church, I would like to see Pope Francis specifically, come forward with a new heresy called Trumpism. Oh. I think the churches come out and say Trumpism is Americanism turned up to 11, where it's now all about the cult of party. Mm-hmm. Not even that. It's it's the cult of personality. It's the cult of Trump. Yes.
2: We were discussing this the other day.
1: Exactly. So yeah. where it's, it's Trump first. Mm-hmm. Even though he says make America great again, America first, it's really Trump first, mm-hmm. America second. Right. And then Christianity third, fourth, fifth, or somewhere else. In the order mm-hmm. um, and it's, it's a huge problem where you know I encounter Christians and you know you have as well where it's like they don't recognize that what Trump is saying and doing is inconsistent with our faith right but they're so blinded by their their politics that they can listen to Trump talk about building walls denigrating women immigrants you know, so on and so forth yeah. with his bullying and think this is perfectly fine for a Christian to do. Right. And, um, I mentioned in the last episode where Trump isn't even really a Christian. He's just <laughs> playing the game.
2: Absolutely. And, and I cannot believe that, you know, I've heard some Christians say that he's the new David. Yes. Like that is just my ears burn when mm-hmm. I hear that. I mean, he's so far removed from, from, David and David did some heinous things, right? You yeah. know, back in the day. But uh, Trump takes the cake here.
1: Yeah, he really does. And I think um, Joel mentioned that he thinks Trump is the Antichrist.
2: I would, I would second that.
1: Yeah, I concur. I, I concur, Joel. <laughs> but it's it's all about putting America first. That America is the gift to the world. Trump is a gift to the world. Everyone else, all the other countries in the world are kind of our enemies. They're trying to take what, you know, rightfully by God belongs to us. And whenever you put America or Trump or anything else at the center of your lives, by default, you are pushing Christ out of the center of your life. And so I think Trumpism, Americanism, I think those are the greatest heresies that um, so many people are falling for today.
2: Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more.
1: So that's what I would like to see. Someone clearly states Trumpism, Americanism is false and is calling people to repentance and calling people yeah. to, yeah, a conversion. So wow. that's my friend talk.
2: That's a pretty awesome friend talk. I, I like that.
1: <laughs> I try to keep it short and sweet.
2: But... I know. You're so much better than I am, which is cool. probably why you should not have me on very often. <laughs> oh, my gosh. The of
1: So we are joined today by Sam Rocha. Uh, you are just fresh off a debate with Trent Horn of Catholic Answers, and you were just telling me a minute ago how you've become very popular with uh, people wanting to interview you on podcasts.
0: Well, I mean, I don't know if I'm famous or infamous, but uh, it's been an exciting time to be able to kind of follow up and jump back, especially into the Catholic world, because I do most of my work at a university, University of British Columbia, so... I'm uh, I'm not always as plugged in directly to the kind of Catholic world as I as I'd like to actually yeah yeah yeah.
1: So I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Um, I'm not a socialist. I'm also not a fan of capitalism. So I'm kind of like a neither nor, I guess. I just I, I want to see, however, our economic system improved and be more just i guess Mm -hmm. so i'm looking forward to our um discussion here but first i just want to say um i came across you on twitter maybe a couple months back and you had posted this picture of like some tacos and and you had made a comment basically about you know being kind of stuck in between two worlds something that i totally related to like you were your on the one hand Maybe you're of Hispanic origin, but on the other hand, you're passable like in white culture. Sure.
0: I mean, I'm Mexican, man. Um, so now I'm a Texas Mexican. I'm not a California Mexican. Uh, I'm a Tejano. Yeah, I mean my my, my, my my parents, my dad's from from the valley, the Rio Grande Valley, and uh, my mom was born in New Mexico and grew up in the Four Corners. So kind of two different kinds of Mexican American families. Uh and I grew up in Texas, also in Reynosa, Mexico. I went to primary school there for two years. And then I lived in the Midwest from kind of college. And that's where I got married and where I've been. And now I live in Canada. So I'm like a Texican Canadian. I'm like NAFTA, the moder- <laughs> the the um, Mexican-American Canadian. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: The whole North but, uh, American concept. Totally. Man. Yeah, exactly.
0: Which people yeah. forget Mexico is a part of all the time.
1: <laughs> yeah, we're we're all American, technically.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. North American.
1: Exactly, yeah. So you're from Texas originally, but you're living in British Columbia. Like maybe you tell me the story, just a little bit of your background.
0: <laughs> yeah, we won't have time to go to the whole story. But uh, the uh, the short version is I was born in Brownsville, Texas, which if you know where Texas, the very tip of Texas is where the Gulf of Mexico meets the Rio Grande River. And so there's the mouth of the Rio Grande emptying out there and Brownsville is on one side of the the river and on the other side is Matamoros, Mexico. Actually, I don't know if people watch Netflix or if they watch Narcos, but the second season of Narcos there's a scene where they go right up to the river and they look to the other side and that the other side is Brownsville. So I was born, you could say, right there in that borderland spot at the Gulf of Mexico and the Rio Grande River. I grew up in a lay missionary Catholic family, so we uh, we moved a lot. Uh, my dad, an evangelist he was one of the people in the 70s who had a major religious conversion he was a heroin addict and drug dealer who uh, had a conversion experience through the charismatic renewal or the renovación cristiana and and he became a, a missionary full-time and met my mom kind of on the road and so we moved around all the time I, I think I went through like 13 different schools from like first grade to twelfth grade. We spent some time in Mexico. We spent some time in the Valley. I went to most of my high school uh, in Brady, Texas, a small town north of San Antonio, south of San Angelo, and uh, and then from there I went to Franciscan University of Steubenville. I was a I was a Gates Scholar, so I got a one of the Bill Melinda Millennium Scholarships. So I went there for four years. And the reason I needed that is because we didn't have no money. <laughs> uh, so I got really, really, really materially poor. But in the church, right? So full time ministry. Um, kind of white collar poverty, I guess. And then uh, out of Franciscan, I got married. I married my wife Anne. We've been, we've been married. We will have been married for fifteen years. In in July, we met there, and she's from Minnesota. So we went back up there, and I started my master's program at University of Saint Thomas in education, and I was teaching kindergarten through eighth grade Spanish at a wow. small parochial school. And uh, after I finished my master's there. I kind of became both very interested, but also very critical, I guess, of education. And I pursued some of those interests in the field called philosophy of education. At Franciscan, my major was in philosophy and Spanish literature. So I followed kind of this nexus of education and philosophy at Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. So we went back to, to Ohio, even though neither one of us are from there. And I did my, uh, my PhD there at Ohio State. So after that, I kind of was on the road as a young, early professoriate, so you kind of go to a visiting assistant professorship spot. I was at a spot called Wabash College for two years, and then I got my first tenure-track job at University of North Dakota in Grand Forks, North Dakota. I hated it. It was so cold. And the first big, good option that came up was uh, University of British Columbia, where I'm at now. And so we moved up here in 2014, almost seven years ago. Um, To put it in perspective, this will be my seventh year here. This is the longest I've ever been in one geographic place in my entire life. So
1: in Canada, British Columbia,
0: right now in B in, in Canada is the longest I've been in any one single place at one time in wow. my entire life. And you know, I'm 37 years old. Uh, I grew up the full-time evangelist ministry family, playing in music ministry. Um, you know, Mexican, but within kind of these two different expressions of. What I think you would see as like the charismatic renewal movement, and yeah, I'm an academic. That's my day job. I keep a kind of night job with a, a trio and playing music, um, and record some albums and stuff like that. And then I write, you know, as a writer, as and both for popular kind of stuff. And and I pop off. I talk a lot of
1: mess on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Thank yeah. God.
0: Yeah. So that's what I so hopefully that catches you up a little bit.
1: Yeah, I'm so fascinated by uh your story. I I happen to look you up on the old YouTube
0: mm. and
1: uh listen to some of your music. I mean, you've been playing the guitar since you were five.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's like thirty two years now. <laughs>
1: that's crazy. Yeah. So you're you're a very multi talented person. That's So I'm glad to have you here to chat with you about this topic today. So I kind of want to jump in then to this topic um, of socialism, because I watched the debate um, on Catholic Answers where you um, argued the negative of the affirmative um, against Trent Horn, which Mm -hmm. was, can a good Catholic be a true socialist?
0: Yeah, I mean, the resolution was uh, no one can at the same time be a good Catholic and a true socialist.
1: Yeah. And how did that come about? How did you come about being invited to participate?
0: Well, I should be humble about this. Like I, I saw Trent's new book, uh, being shared by a buddy of mine who runs a podcast out of Dallas Edmond, uh, the show and, um, the title, can a Catholic be a socialist? And then the subtitle is the answer is no. Here's why. I don't know. That kind of set me off. So like I do, I just kind of popped off right off the hip. And, um, it turns out that while I didn't know Trent, uh, at all, it turns out within my circle of friends, lots of people knew or knew of Trent. So they, um, put me in touch with Trent or really put, made him aware that I had popped off and Trent, uh, reached out and said, well, do you want to debate? And my background in High school is. I was a very, very active, competitive uh, Lincoln-Douglas debater, uh, and I love debate. It's kind of, kind of what got me into philosophy, actually. So I jumped at the opportunity to debate, um, and I did ask him. I said, my only condition is I'll debate basically on anything related to this topic, but I want to have a really clear uh, resolution or claim. And so he first proposed that I debate this resolution from the affirmative side. But I was like, that would be kind of weird because you basically think this statement is true. So if you think it's true, you should affirm the statement. And I'll take the other side, which is to negate it because I don't think it's true. And he agreed. So that's how it was all set up. We should also give him credit that he, his resolution wasn't just out of his own head. He's actually quoting uh, an encyclical from 1931 called Quadragesimo Anno. It's line 120, the paragraph 120 that ends with that quote. So he's kind of leading with uh, a big uh, statement from the church, uh, from an encyclical in the church. So it kind of makes sets me up on pretty bad footing because it looks like I'm taking the position en contra the church, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't want to get too far ahead here, but I think personally that you won that debate. But we can get in that, into that in a minute. But you took that um, challenge then um, because you're a socialist. Would you describe yourself as a socialist?
0: Um, I mean, it, by affiliation, yes. In Canada, there are four kind of viable parties. There's the Conservatives. There's the Liberals. There's what's called the NDP, which is the New Democrats Party the new democratic party and then there's the greens i i my politics align best with the ndp which is orange and they're seen as the democratic socialist or social democrat party of canada and in the u.s um my politics probably now today most closely aligned with like the dsa um the democratic socialists of america yeah so in that sense i guess you would say i'm a socialist but to be honest philosophically to me, the, the, like, what party you belong to isn't necessarily like a philosophical reason or a substantial reason for, for that. Um, my stance as a philosopher, as a person, as a thinker, uh, as an intellectual, is I'm a personalist. So I I hold a particular view concerning the human person that's inspired by a tradition that Emmanuel Mounier in a French magazine he started called Esprit um, started in the 30s. And uh, I see myself... Uh, working from that and within that tradition, and it just so happens that like mounier was both a personalist; he kind of founded personalism in a way. Um, but the, being a personalist led him to be in solidarity with and in party with the the Catholic left, in particular the socialist left. Yeah, so that's about where
1: I am too. Okay, so then that's my next question. Then because we love labels, it helps us to mm-hmm. put things into categories, into boxes, and then we can kind of understand it. Mm-hmm. And After watching the debate, and I watched it actually a couple times, Mm. uh, reading the YouTube comments, which is Mm. always a bad idea, Mm -hmm. FYI to anyone listening, I was struck. And then also, Trent Horn went on to another podcast by Matt Mm Frad, and they had this conversation as well about definitions yeah they were like obsessed with definitions
0: yeah yeah yeah
1: um because they kind of were saying that you didn't define socialism right so I don't, do you want this opportunity to to give it a crack to define socialism or do you think that it's too uh well i don't know what, what do you what do you think about that
0: well let me just say two things and then i'd be i would be really happy to have either you or someone who listens to this explain to me what i'm missing first My case had three parts, if you exclude the introduction and conclusion, the first part was counterfactual evidence. So in other words, if you say that the fact is that you can't be a socialist and a Catholic, I provided counterfacts in triplicate to show that, well, here are three cases that are counterfactual to that claim. The second part, though, was this whole section that kind of got dismissed, which was called The Meaning of Socialism. And in that section, I showed how Benedict XVI's thought shows us how we can be in a very um, critical yet constructive relationship to the thought of Karl Marx, and how flowing out of that, one of the first big ideas that I think grounds the kind of moral vision of socialism is this critique of alienation that I articulated through John Paul II, who just says essentially that like, yeah, even if Marx was wrong, alienation is something we have to understand as Christians. And then I said, this alienation leads, according to John Paul II and his encyclical Sintessimus anus, to a reversal of, of values well, what's the reversal? Then I went into my third point, which is the reversal between the order between capital and labor or work, that it puts capital above labor or work or the labor and the worker puts things above persons. And that's the reversal. It needs to be put in the other relationship where work or the labor or the person comes before the capital or the thing. And so writing that, that inversion of alien, that, that, that alienation creates is, in some sense, the moral project of socialism. Now, again, maybe this isn't a one-sentence, tweet-like thing, but I think I was showed with evidence, by the way, not just out of my own head, but with an enormous um, uh, reliance upon the magisterial teachings of the Church and Catholic social teaching, how from it's okay to read Karl Marx to— and from there it follows that it's okay to accept alienation as a a problem— from there to and the problem that alienation focuses on is on this disordered relationship between work or labor and ca- and capital and then how that righted relationship helps us make sense of concrete things the church says like the universal destination of goods its ideas of private property those were examples where i thought i had already like explained the meaning and i was like giving now like here's how it lo- works out practically even all the way to like what are, is taxation theft i'm sorry The person who says that I didn't give a definition in this debate, having supplied what I hope was a limited but nonetheless an attempt at supplying something like a magisterial account of the meaning, if by definitions we mean what something means, then the meaning of socialism isn't, I think, I don't think that's a fair accusation. What I think, though, they were saying is that we want a definition like a glossary or, you know, well, to that I would say. If you say that in order for me to make true claims, I must operate from definitions, then it's your burden first to define what a definition is. Because it's not reasonable to tell someone they have a burden if you're not burdening yourself first with the same burden. Here's my definition of definitions. My definition of definitions is an adequate description of whatever is being said to be the case. I believe that giving three real examples from Italy, from Brazil, and from Tanzania, were three diverse geopolitical examples that described the thing that I was saying was the case. Counterfactual to what was being said couldn't be the case. Then when I supplied my meaning of socialism through the kind of more theoretical but magisterial teachings of the church, I believe I was trying to supply An adequate description of what I took to be the case. And if you took that third section where I piled a bunch of stuff in, including my story and stuff, I just kind of like, you know, threw some glitter up in the air with Dorothy Day and Cesar Chavez and Munier and Maritan and all of these other people who you could kind of like, there's more. The person who thinks that a definition of definition, which says an adequate Description of whatever is being said to be the case that this doesn't meet that condition would have to provide me with a far more rigorous account of definition than I think, frankly, they could ever do. I believe what really happened was this in the absence of Rocha is owned by facts and logic, they couldn't grab a hold of anything. And yeah, am I slippery? Absolutely, I'm a philosopher, I'm trained. Like read Socrates' dialogues, right? You can't pin him down yeah. on anything. <laughs> Not having definitions is like the great virtue of Plato's dialogue. So I I understand that. But like Socrates' aversion to, to definitions is that the definitions are shallow. And they don't really talk about the real thing. There's a cool dialogue called the Mino where this ethicist comes in from another city, another polis, another city-state, and he says, tell me, Socrates, can virtue be taught? And he's like, I don't know. What's virtue? And he's like, what do you mean? You don't know what virtue is? And by the end, it turns out that it's terribly difficult to explain what virtue is. Benedict Sixteenth, in On Conscience says that, according to Plato, the good cannot be known through scholastic words. Does this mean we shouldn't be virtuous? We shouldn't be good because we don't have a definition? Obviously not. We have to give adequate descriptions of whatever is the case. So we point to the lives of people who we believe lived in virtuous ways. We call those the saints, the blessed, the venerables. Uh, we We point to real things that we can best approximate what is the case. To me, this is a reasonable way to talk to reasonable people about what they can understand a Catholic socialism to be. And the fact that so many people responded so strongly to this as an absence of definitions, to me says probably more about their faulty premises, and maybe even out of their kind of unfulfilled desires, than it really says about my case, as I understand it within my limited ability to understand. But I invite anyone out there in the world to supply me with what I'm missing here, and I'll gladly accept it and revise my
1: view. That was, wow, I loved how you just totally owned that right now, because I was so frustrated when I was reading those comments, as it sounds like you are too, because I'm like, (laughs) did you guys miss the debate? Because you, like you just walked through, supplied so many examples and so much information to where I don't see how a definition would have changed the course or altered what you were saying. It's like they were looking for a reason to be against what you were saying. Yeah, it's like they were I looking so. for an it out. It's like, oh, you didn't yeah. define it, so therefore you lost. I don't know.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, there's two other things I would say. One is like if you understand kind of the rules of debate, we're actually not debating each other. It's not personal. We're debating two different sides of a resolution. So Trent's burden was to affirm the resolution to show that it is in fact the case. My burden is not to say Trent is is wrong, but it's simply to negate the resolution, which means I need to sow enough doubt into the listener's mind to make them suspect that the affirmation of the resolution cannot stand. And if I do that, I fulfill my burden. And on that technical definition oddly enough i win the debate right Uh as a kind of trained debater i have to admit i was kind of Going for the technical win, you know? Um, but I think there's more than just the technical win because this isn't high school, and we should probably <laughs> grow up, you know. I, I think the bigger part is that, um Trent was operating from the assumption that true socialism has a very particular definition, which means the government ownership and control of all private property. First of all, this is a real version of a kind of state socialist, uh, a state, state communism, for instance, but it's an overdetermined definition of true socialism because it only accounts for a part of what's the case. But then it says, because it has a part, that that can contain the whole. I would not dispute – Trent wasn't wrong, though. Let me be clear. Trent's not wrong. He's absolutely right that the church, especially in 1931, was deeply morally concerned with totalitarian state communism, and it worried that even the moderate socialists were still too close to that offensively atheistic and totalitarian version of politics. And the church spoke forcefully in that. What's interesting, actually, is that Pope John Paul II, who I think understood this concern of the church whenever he writes after 1989, he literally talks about after true socialism. So there we can even see that the even Pope John Paul II, retrospectively, he understands that true socialism means something like state communism. Now, Trent could win if he wanted to say true socialism means and only means State control of private property, state possession of private property, holding all things in communal ownership. But I'm talking, I think, to people in the year 2020. Yeah not in 1931, not in 1989. And I believe a reasonable person who hears someone say, you can't be a true socialist, or you can't be a Catholic and a socialist, they're hearing something like a moral prohibition for supporting certain kinds of social policies, or finding themselves in solidarity with certain kinds of political movements, or seeing them uh, understanding uh, certain ways to pursue the good life as viable or not. And I think people of good faith can recognize the fact that while he had maybe some hard definition on his side, and I don't want to dispute that because I shouldn't overdetermine my case just because he over-determined his, I should be reasonable. I wanted to show Catholics that this kind of technical definitional move doesn't carry the pain of, of impossibility for them in their lives, especially in their lives in the United States of America, where most of the audience was listening to, and the decisions that are coming up, in particular this fall, right? Like, I know the debate wasn't, like, I hope that can be really plain here, but like, I know the debate wasn't, can a Catholic be a Democrat, or, or something like that, but let's be honest. People use that code of socialist and stuff in the United States all the time to describe things like Medicare for all, for instance, or things like that. He even brought up healthcare actually. So yeah. to me, I wanted to confront all those things, you know, head on.
1: Um, to that point, you mentioned and maybe you can clarify this for me. Um, the difference between orthodoxy, I think you said, and orthopraxy. Mm-hmm. What, what's the difference there? Maybe you can clarify that for me. I
0: mean, this is a teaching in the church. It's a theological distinction, actually, and it goes way back. And it's simply the, the fact that, like, you know, doxa, or the things you believe uh, to be the case, is not the same thing as praxis, which is the way you live your life. So... The idea that we 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 sh- we show our we show ourselves as followers of Christ, not just in saying that we are followers of Christ, but most of all we show that we are followers of Christ through the way we live our lives, our praxis. That's the idea. And so you know, there is a sense of a sort of dogmatic account or a definitional account of a thing, but I think we also know the fact that like there's a difference between its definition or its dogmatic expression what is orthodox and then our practice and enactment an of that into our life everyone knows this if they know anything about love so like there's a difference between love and loving to say to the beloved i love you is really nice good start but the real test of love is whether you love or is by loving the beloved yeah. and so the beloved has no has no guarantees of one's love because one has Decreed one's love. And in fact, even if you never decree your love, you can, through loving, do something that requires no decree at all, that has no requirement of declarations or whatever. And so it's, you know, it's walking the talk. It's very simple, right?
1: Yeah. You know, going back to the debate, I think that's why you won mm. because he was so hung up on the orthodoxy, kind of the pie in the sky abstract discussion about it versus you with your technical win being able to cite three very good catholics yeah who are on the path to sainthood if i'm correct
0: yeah 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 blessed and venerables yeah
1: and my favorite of the three you mentioned was um elder kamara
0: yeah kamara yeah
1: and i i love his quote when i give food to the poor they call me a saint when i ask why <laughs> they are poor they call me a, a communist. communist yeah So these people, I'm assuming, these three you mentioned, they lived their lives in a time when maybe socialism was frowned upon. So how did they in their own lives reconcile their faith, this, I guess, stricture against socialism with being a socialist? How did they reconcile those?
0: Yeah, I mean, each of them uh, did this in a very different way. I guess I'll be brief with Frasadi and Nerere, but then give more details with Kamara. Because I, I actually agree with you. Kamada is probably my favorite of the three. So Frasadi, it was really simple. He lived in the time when Mussolini was rising to power. So he expressed his – so he was opposed to fascism. And – the parties that were opposed to fascism were uh, in general socialism people forget that like in that same period of time when cuadragésimo ano uh, was was promulgated this was a time when franco was coming in as a fascist opposing the socialists of spain and the church in many ways. And I think the church, um, uh, the church makes mistakes, um, especially in the, in the real temporal world affairs, it, the church can get on, you know, we, we've seen this certainly in the United States with the, uh, tragedy of the, you know, uh, abuse reports that we have to see. And I don't believe as, as Catholics, we can look away from this. And, and it's true that the church, I think made a mistake by backing Franco and the fascists because they believed, that there was more hope in that political agenda than there was in the very very secular uh, socialist status quo in Spain. The reason I'm saying this is that Prasadi, uh he didn't choose that side like the Spanish uh, fascists. He chose to be on the side of the anti-fascists and on the side of the populists and the socialists. And he punched a fascist actually at a he literally uh, he he didn't he do was it.
1: Antifa. He, was, he Antifa. was Antifa. Yeah, <laughs>
0: he he literally there was there was there was a student action. Uh, rally, and there was a cop who put his hand on his friend and was restraining him, and they were trying to, you know, move away, and Frassati went in there and, uh, you know, knocked the dude out. So it was, I think, easy for Frassati to reconcile his socialism, because socialism was clearly against the rise of Mussolini, which would become the alliance with Hitler in Europe, right? So, like, it's not hard, I don't think. Mounier, it's fairly easy. He was a part of the French Resistance. They they were anti-Nazi. So that was an easy, you know, match come, uh, Nate, is sort of interesting because he was a head of state and he actually had his own almost philosophical vision of a socialism that was basically a familial socialism. He called it based on this African word called Ujama and Ujama means something like familyhood. The point is that in our own families, there is no private property. Mm, true. In our own families, we do not relate to each other using, um, the same laws we use externally. Now, the West, uh, Nate had argued, uh, especially in their colonial uh, divestments of Africa, of its resources and stuff, told Africa that you need to abandon your your familial African way of life and accept this more developed way of relating to each other, not as family. And he rejected that firmly through a socialism that for him was tied intrinsically to African nationalism. And for him, this was very much rooted also in his Christianity and his Catholicism. So he was a head of state of Tanzania and a socialist head of state. So there you can see it was kind of easy for him too because he was actually like a working member of the party. Kamada is different because he's so interesting because he's um, an archbishop of a a major diocese in the north of Brazil uh, from 1964 to 1985. So this is during the military regime in Brazil. It's during the the very active anti-socialist time. Freire was exiled from Brazil, who is the person who Camara kind of really helped. But this is also the time after Vatican II in the church. And in Latin America, after Vatican II, there were two councils held in, uh, if I'm correct with my dates, uh, 68 and 79 at Medellin in Colombia and Puebla in Mexico. And at these two councils, the bishops, which included Camara, um, especially at Medellin, um, there was a, a particular theological uh, tradition that was really founded from the heart of Latin America, which is called liberation theology. And I know, like people in the U.S., especially conservatives, they they you know their heads blow up when you say that. But you should look. Into the the canonical status, liberation theology is a canonically accepted theological tradition in the Roman Catholic Church. Has it been critiqued? Yes. So is Thomism. So has Augustinianism. So is everything else. Um, but it is a live option for Catholics. And this idea of liberation theology is is basically the well uh, the way that Kamara was able to articulate his socialism, which seemed like communism, but also uh, seemed like sainthood, and where did it come from? For him, it came from the favela. The favela is the same as like a hido for, for like in, in Spanish. The favela was the place where the poorest of the poorest of the poorest of the poor lived. They lived in cardboard boxes and not like homeless, like in the urban, but like in these giant colonies of dispossessed peoples. And they they still live there. Right now, COVID is just just rucking through the favelas of Rio de Janeiro mm-hmm. under Bolsonaro's watch. Camara's heart believes strongly that we encounter Christ in the poor, and whenever you live with a favela with so many poor people, then the encounter with Christ is by going down there and by meeting people and seeing in their face, the face of Christ. This is what I think the reason why he's a venerable, but it's also the reason why he was a socialist. Uh, It's this very, very kind of moral and religious heart for the poor what he had as an archbishop, and he and he lived it, and he lived in it, and that's where the social reality of Brazil really jumps up, you know. Uh, but we see it also with like Cesar Chavez and the, the Huelga movement and his advocacy for workers, and Dorothy Day and a lot of the work that Americans did on, this, be, on behalf of the civil rights movement. You know, you look at those pictures of Martin Luther King walking in the streets, and you'll see a lot of habits, a lot of nuns, you'll see a lot of callers, a lot of Roman callers, and that's why, because we're this is, this is the Catholic church too. You know, we, we, uh, we advocate for these projects, which is a part of the left, you know?
1: Yeah. And so that's what I always find to be so fascinating about conservatives when, you know, they'll refer to socialism as evil. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Is it because there's this conflation of communism, like totalitarianism with socialism where when they think of socialism, they immediately think of like China. Like I know on the Matt Fred show with Trent Horn, Matt Fred's head exploded when, you know, Trent mentioned that uh, you cited China as not yeah. an example of socialism. So well, because it's, kind it's of so obviously
0: right not because state the, the state communist party in China, uh, the kind of the the legacy of Mao and of the Cultural Revolution and, 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 and that particular approach to communism, is they, that is exactly what socialism is opposed to. And it, and by the way, communists hate socialists. You can read Lenin and Mao and Castro and Stalin talk, because the socialist position, and maybe this gets closer to what, what people are looking for, it's a realist position. Socialists are not as utopian you might say as the anarchists or the distributists or as the communists they're not waiting for the revolution to come and write everything the practical realist socialist position is basically that like look global capitalism is not something that we can just get rid of without bringing enormous amounts of suffering where i'm from the maquiladoras are these giant factories that have been placed into a traditionally agrarian valley of of, of a river And they've upended the natural economy to where it no longer relies on oranges and grapefruits and and agricultural crops. And now giant tech companies have workers who ride in peceras to these maquiladoras, and they work and they get paid very little but enough and more regularly than they might have otherwise. But then they have all this distance costs, they're not living at home. Anyway, it's complicated. But here's the deal. Ending capitalism doesn't mean get rid of the maquiladoras and tell everyone they're screwed. They will literally die in the streets, right? Socialism says we have to figure out a way to deal with this where we don't kill people by communist takeover, revolution, whatever, but also where we don't just let co- capitalism slowly kill people and their way of life the way it's done for all these years, right? And so China is a great example of a place where state communism actually to survive has relied on capitalism. Through China's very aggressive global capitalist society, through its through its markets, through the stock markets and traded in Beijing and uh, um, and other places, um, and um, and then on top of that, there's this kind of fascist authoritarian aspect of mainland China, as we see in terms of its threats of democrat democracies like Hong Kong, the status of Taiwan, stuff like that. So for the socialists like Versadi, like Kamada, like Naderi, I mean, China fits the bill, you know. Here's another thing, too, is that capitalists. If I asked Trent Horn, like, are you an anarcho capitalist? He'd be like, no, because I think he's a smart guy. It, you got to be pretty crazy to be an anarcho capitalist, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but then if I said, like, are you an Austrian school capitalist or a Chicago school of economics capitalist? I'm sure. Actually, I don't know. Like, I th- I think he's probably Chicago, but I could be wrong. And then if I get into that, I could get into little details. In other words, capitalists know that you don't just become capitalist, right? Right. It depends what kind of capitalist you are. And there's bad capitalisms. There's what they call – even capitalists will talk about crony capitalism and say that's a bad capitalism. So why can't socialists say there's state communism and that's the bad kind of communism and socialism? We want the good kind. And you can distinguish between – our equivalent of chicago school or our equivalent of austrian school and in my case my school is the church it's catholic socialism
1: so it's not a monolith there are different denominations of socialism
0: absolutely
1: yeah okay someone asked me this a couple days ago and it was an interesting question would jesus have described himself as a socialist
0: this is a good question it's actually something that trent and i i think actually agree about um so Trent, in his book especially, doesn't like people who say, the early church, we're all, we're all socialists. Uh, David Bentley Hart, for instance, kind of argues this um, in some of his writing. Uh, he has a really interesting and provocative – it's called um, – I'll have to look it up again. Um, but it's a cool essay, I think in Commonweal or in America. But like you know, when we look at the Book of Acts, like uh, Ananias and Sapphira were literally turned to dust by Peter because they withheld their goods from the community. I mean, that's how radical some people point to. Here's why I disagree with those people, and I think Trent is right. I think it's historically anachronistic. If I want to say I'm a realist and I'm about the way we talk about things in 2020, no, I don't think it's fair to say, because socialism was invented in the 19th century. It was a reaction to industrialism. It was an in- a reaction to the modern Western capitalism. I, I think it's anachronistic to say that just because jesus promoted uh feeding the poor uh uh, feeding the hungry and and caring for the poor that he was a socialist no jesus didn't need to identify as a socialist by the way jesus also is clearly not a capitalist in any way uh at all i I think what we have to understand is that jesus also wasn't an american what uh, or no (laughs) he wasn't a canadian uh he wasn't a tanzanian Uh, I don't even like it when people, sometimes for reasons I agree with, say he was Palestinian. Like, at least your geography is closer.
1: (laughs) I've made that comment myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's what would be, I guess, more modern-day Palestine. But it was not at the time. That's anachronistic
0: that's right. And so for me it's like if I'm going to play a certain game I need to keep I need to stick by the rules. So no, I wouldn't say to you this is a socialist, but I do believe that the Christian who wants to follow Christ in 2020 and who reads and meditates on scripture in the light of tradition and especially in the light of our Catholic social teaching um of the last 130 years, I believe that one will find an enormous amount of sympathy in the church for a kind of politics that would broadly speaking be called of the left and that would not that that would not be as as clearly comfortable on on the right for instance the preferential option for the poor Mm-hmm. which is something we see before Christ we see in, in in the Old Testament the 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 fact that Israel needs to care for the widow, the orphan, and the alien right This is one of the like the the most severe mandates uh that God gives to his people the fact that they were enslaved and were freed from slavery and in order to get free from slavery, really messed with egypt like to the point of taking the pharaoh's own son like violence and pestilence and all these things and drowned his army in the sea like this is this is what we have this is our tradition right you get to christ that option for the poor and the magnificat he has cast down the mighty and you know all that stuff and we go all the way through and we look at the early church and its witness and face of the roman empire and all this stuff all i'm trying to say is that the preferential option for the poor is really consistently both practiced and becoming one of our most orthodox pillars think about capitalism who does who is who is the where is the preferential option under capitalism it's obviously if it's not for the rich it's a preferential option for neither the poor nor the rich but for capital for this inhuman object out there that accrues value and to me like there's something deeply antithetical to the teachings of christ that capitalism and that a particular vision of political economy from the right has that has to face the moral the moral teaching of the church. And I think in that respect, certain socialist approach to political economy can really approximate that. And that's why Benedict XVI said that the social democracies of Europe came really close to, you know, um, showing the church's teaching. But to your point, no, I'm not down with uh, (laughs) calling Jesus a socialist. Jesus uh, is is the Christ, and that's about as far as I'll go with that. He was a person. Yes. And a confusing person because he was – the Christological mystery, right? God and man.
1: He spoke um, in parables.
0: Yeah, he didn't give that de- many definitions either.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, he would have gotten dings. <laughs> I know. Oh, yeah. wow. That's funny. Um, <laughs> but you know, okay, to kind of follow that train of thought, though, in the Acts of the Apostles, we see where the early Christian community did sell all their possessions and live um, communally. So is that kind of like a a source of inspiration for a vision of socialism? I think it's a source of inspiration that we see in our religious
0: orders and the charisms that are lived out in communal life within the church. I think it's always a scandal when the diocesan churches in particular, like we saw in West Virginia recently, live in opulence amidst, you know, like, like you know, whenever you're in Appalachia, living it up as people are... I mean, Appalachia is one of the most economically depressed areas in the United States. Like, you know, the I think the church has to be very careful about wealth. And she and Jesus says this to the rich man, right? The rich man says, like, you know, I've kept all the laws. What do I do now? He says, well, easy. Just go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and come follow me. And he puts his head down and he walks away. You know, so to me, yeah, there's, there's something really key about the admonition against and the warnings against the camel's eye and all that stuff. However... One of the reasonable capitalist responses against the argument that the early church was like this kind of model for communism is that people entered into that freely. Now, Anias and Sapphira probably didn't have a lot of freedom whenever they got pulverized by Peter. <laughs> but I think, I think that that point is important, that the the kingdom of God that we seek in intentional community within the church – uh, it may not be reasonable to place the same expectation on the world we live in, especially in a world in which not everyone shares the same confessional faith or any faith. At the same time, I do believe there's a there's a fine line between saying yes, I can't force people, but then there is though this project we have of like a nation or a city or a group or like if I invite you over to a party, or like there is some sense though of a common good. There is some sense of that like promoting human flourishing, and what are those values, right? What's funny to me is that the church is, doesn't actually take all of its cues from Scripture. It takes a lot of its cues from the pagan philosophers, from Aristotle, from Plato. And the ideas of the good life and of happiness and of hu- human flourishing that we get from the Greeks in particular, I think those are elements of the church that we can aspire to see lived out in community, and that we can engage in a reasonable and non-dogmatic, but nonetheless deeply moral conversation with um, other people. So for me, the preferential option for the poor isn't limited to the confines of those who accept Hebrew as the foundation for the book of wisdom, and accept the teachings of Christ in the New Testament, and blah, 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 blah. I believe that the preferential option for the poor is true, morally that it is wrong, all things considered, universally and eternally, for the powerful to bring injury upon those who are less powerful For them, to, to them. I think the Christian message is a powerful and beautiful examination of that truth, but I don't believe that that truth was somehow non-existent before Christ. And I think as— Catholics, we have to be able to also show the humility of bringing the best of our tradition, but realizing that not all of it is exclusive to our tradition. Uh, in this case, many people of goodwill can gather around questions of the good life, of human flourishing, of the common good, and affirm something like the preferential option for the poor. And Catholic socialism, or even socialism beyond catholic or christian socialism that's one manifestation of people who really believe in something like we might that we might call the preferential option for the poor in society it breaks my heart as a canadian up here i'm not really a canadian but it's fun to call us <laughs> that when i see you guys sharing your gofundmes man mm. that kills me you know i want to help and i've had I've, I've even created some for some of my friends and i know how how hard it is to get to the point where you're like putting out a digital hand. But GoFundMe is a corporation mm-hmm. that collects money off it. Like, this is a game, man. And yeah. it's so tragic to me that the United States lacks the moral vision to realize that there should not be a society pursuing the good life through a corporation called GoFundMe trimming 2% or 6% off of. Uh, interest rates that you know what I mean like that's so messed up you know and you're the only yeah. country in the world right now who does this no one else does this it's a to me this is a moral abomination and that's my socialism that's why I support things like medicare for all and universal healthcare
1: so let me ask you this then this is maybe a controversial yeah. <laughs> question but um okay this is this is horrible let me ask it <laughs> Can a good Catholic also be a true capitalist (laughs) in the truest sense? All right. And once again, we want to thank Sam Rocha for being with us on the podcast. Wow. So look out for part two next week. Yes. Part two. It's going to be awesome the riveting exciting conclusion to our discussion and if you want to check out the debate go ahead onto youtube um you can find the debate i will include the link in the show notes um excellent debate as well highly
2: inconvenient have i loved you beauty so old beauty so
1: So in this next part of our show, we like to talk about things that we are watching or reading or listening to. Um, But this week, Christina and I both picked a show called The Politician, which can be found on Netflix. Yes. What do you think of the show?
2: Well, I mean, at first glance, I see Bette Midler. So anything Bette Midler. Oh, yeah. um, I'm
1: (laughs) already super intrigued, so... And that was in the trailer. Yes, the trailer. Because in season one of the show, Bette Midler's not in it, actually.
2: I know. And that was kind of surprising because you see, like, the trailer. But then the first complete season
1: did not have her at all. So So to give context, so the politician in season one takes place in Santa Barbara. And Santa Barbara is about an hour south of us. Um, Yeah. The story takes place at the school, St. Sebastian's. Mm -hmm. And it focuses on this student, Peyton. Hobart, who, for his whole life, really, had an aspiration to be president. Mm -hmm. And he's been able to put together a team of students, peers, who also share his dream of getting to the White House. Mm -hmm. And uh, the whole season is them running his campaign to be student body president. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of them opposing him. Right. It's like... High school seniors, you know, but yeah. they're stabbing each other in the back. There's all right. kinds of drama and intrigue. and It's extra. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> it's, it's extra. It's, it's a little extra, which
2: I love. Yes,
1: it's so good. And so we just started season two. Yeah. And season two is where... Um, Bette comes in. Bette Midler comes in. Mm. She's the chief of staff uh-huh. for Judith Light, played by Dee Dee Standish. Yes. And they're New York assembly people or she's a, a New York assembly mm-hmm. woman. And at the beginning of the season, she's propositioned to, in the near future, be the vice presidential running mate mm-hmm. for another politician who wants to be president. Yeah. An Arizona politician. Yeah. So basically she then doesn't really pay a lot of attention to her district. Mm-hmm. So this kind of leaves an opening for Peyton and his team to challenge her for her seat. Yeah. what do you like about the show? <sighs>
2: everything i mean just from the opening credits and how quirky it is and the music to um ben's character and just how cutthroat and vicious and
1: mm-hmm.
2: flamboyant but yet masculine i don't know it's just he's just a really intriguing character
1: he is and what's interesting to me is that he's almost like a sociopath oh for sure Where he knows deep down on some level he's not a good person, Mm -hmm. but he does good things. Right. And that's kind of his, I guess, motif through the show. Yes. And like when it boils down to it, like, is it better to be a good person who does nothing or Mm -hmm. does bad things? Or Mm -hmm. is it better to be like maybe a crabby person who does good things? (laughs) And so he almost seems inauthentic and people around him kind of know it, Mm -hmm. but he does have a passion for doing what's Right. Yeah. Like, there's a scene where a kid is in the bathroom doing something he should not be doing in the mm-hmm. stall. But he's kind of peeking in on Peyton having a discussion. And he's saying, like, I want to be president because I want to help the students at the school.
2: Right. Yeah. So, yeah, he does want to make change. He does want to make a difference. But at the same time, his narcissistic ambition mm-hmm. kind of takes over.
1: It becomes his Achilles heel. Yeah. No spoilers, but.
2: But all the other characters, too. I mean, it really. Gwyneth Paltrow's in it.
1: Oh, she's so good. Yeah. yeah. There's also a dynamic in the show where there's a character named Infinity. Mm, yeah. And she supposedly has cancer.
2: Yeah. She has Munchausen by proxy.
1: Well, she's got Munchausen, and her grandmother has. Oh, yeah. It yeah, yeah. By proxy. Yes. And come um, to find out, her grandmother has been poisoning this.
2: Whoa! Spoilers. Stop the record. I yeah. Are
1: we? <laughs> I don't want to do too
2: delving too much information out here. Like, should we?
1: Let's just watch it? watch the show. Watch the show. It's yeah, extra. We, we can
2: just talk about every little minute detail, and um, then you know everything about the show and like, not watch have it. to watch it. So.
1: And you should watch it. It's on Netflix. Yeah, it's a great it, yeah show. We liked it. Two thumbs up. Well, there's two of us, so I guess four thumbs up. Check it out.
2: Oh, my goodness. <laughs> my mind.
1: That's all for this week. Thank you so much for joining us on our Humble the Podcast. You could do us a huge favor by subscribing to our show wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, or Apple Podcasts. And be sure to rate our show and leave a review. Your rating will help others find this show. And be sure to find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Conversation on Tap. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Sam, for joining us. Thank you for Christina. Thanks for having me. For being our co-host. Our hostess with the mostess. Oh,
2: my goodness.
1: Definitely the hottest co-host we've had.
2: Seriously. The
1: sexiest.
2: Why do you always, like, you're just bent on embarrassing me. No
1: at all. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers.